Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Rob Kanaki. Rob is a senior fellow for cyber policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Yes, that really is a title. He focuses on governance, public and private partnerships and cyber conflict. He served from 2011 to 2015 as a director for cybersecurity policy at the National Security Council within the White House. Rob was responsible for the development of presidential policy on cybersecurity. He also built and managed federal processes for cyber incident response and the policy for in international cyber conflict. Hope you enjoy it. So hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on today. Good to be here. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? New York City. Where did you grow up? Uh, New York and then the uh, Boston area. What was your education like? I been very focused as a uh, as a liberal arts major, uh, non-technical background. I was terrible at math, terrible at science, uh, didn't do well in uh, computer classes, but uh, really excelled in college once I found my, my niche and focus in uh, political science and, and public policy. What was your first role after you after you finished education? So I've been... Um, I went to a Connecticut college, which is in New London, Connecticut, uh, and it is right across the street from the Coast Guard Academy. And so while the uh, Coast Guard cadets did their military training every afternoon, I, uh, I crossed the street and worked there as a research assistant for a professor. And then after I graduated, uh, he hired me to work on border security, homeland security, and, and the early stages of cybersecurity policy. So I worked there for a, for a few months uh, after, uh, after graduating. Was that the first time that you heard of or had any sort of experience with cybersecurity? Certainly from a, certainly from a policy standpoint. Uh, when I was in college, I, uh, I was the uh, editor of our, our school school newspaper and one of the cases we covered was probably the earliest exposure that I had to computer forensics when one of my uh, associate editors received uh, some hate uh, messages through a uh, early messaging system and working with the uh, computer staff at, at my college we were able to trace it back and unmask uh, the user's uh, behind it, who had thought that they were uh, hidden uh, through an anonymous uh, anonymization feature uh, on on the old Novell system, 
So that was probably my first exposure to cybersecurity. But from a policy perspective, yeah, it was that it was that first role at the Coast Guard Academy. So following on from that, you went to work at Good Harbor Consulting, Homeland Security, the White House, a variety of other roles. What would you say was your biggest education in terms of in a working role? I, I think my early exposure in the cybersecurity field at, at Good Harbor was really was really formative. I, I had joined there just when cybersecurity was something that uh, boards were beginning to get an interest in, uh, where CISOs were just starting to get hired at, at most large companies. This was around 2005. And so I, I had an opportunity fairly early on in my career to to jump into the field uh, with both feet and, and focus on it uh, and sort of leave behind the other areas of security that I'd, I'd been working in. And so that's where I think I really got got my start in terms of uh, getting up on the cyber curve. So one of my favorite questions to ask at this point is, what is cybersecurity to you? So the, the perspective that I take on cybersecurity it has kind of shifted over the years. And, and now what I'm, I'm really focused on uh, is what some people are starting to call cyber resilience. And the idea of cyber resilience is accepting that you may be breached, you may have a bad outcome, you may lose data. What you need to do for business purposes is to be able to learn very quickly from those outcomes, make changes to your systems, to your operations, to your business practices, and prevent that outcome and other similar outcomes from happening again. And so for me, cybersecurity isn't so much the prevention of a breach or the prevention even of data loss. It's having a system in place where those things result from a correctable breach in security rather than the absence of security. And how, how would you put that into, into a framework if you were going to implement it into some sort of organization? So I think when organizations start to look at cyber resilience, it really can shift the focus from looking at what they are doing on their perimeter or what they're doing on their host in, set, in terms of stopping activities and to start trying to answer questions like, how would we operate if we didn't have uh, our computing systems for a day or a week? How could we keep business functioning? That's sort of the most extreme scenario. As you move away from that kind of scenario, cyber resilience really becomes about putting in place and it's very hard to do those learning mechanisms so that every time an incident does occur, you're capturing and acting on those lessons rather than simply observing them and repeating the same problems over and over again. How would you say policy helps you to do this? At this point, I don't think it does. At this point, I think we still very much are stuck in a protection mindset. Uh, if you look at some of the work that I did on policy, 
And so you can blame some of this on me. Um, the executive orders that gave rise to the NIST cybersecurity framework talk about the need to build resiliency, uh, but that was largely left undefined. And when that directive was carried over into the NIST framework, it was similarly brought into the front end, but not really into the back end of the framework. And so you don't necessarily have a set of categories or subcategories in the NIST cybersecurity framework leading down to a set of controls that are that are necessary in order to build resilience within an organization. How would you go around, you know, if you, when you talk about cybersecurity framework, how would you go around impacting the, the, the entire business? Is that, is that possible? It certainly is possible. It's also very, very difficult. Uh, and it's a lot of the boring work of cybersecurity that people really, really don't like. I think if you go to any cybersecurity conference, uh, I'm sure there were half a dozen panels uh, like this at RSA this year that, that simply deride the idea of checklist security and note that there's such a massive gap between compliance with security and actual security. I, mean, I, I, I can't dispute that, but what I can say is that organizations that are effective at managing their cyber risk, they make it very boring uh, to work on an incident response team within their organization. They take away uh, the fire and fury of doing it. And they do that through a lot of the same uh, techniques and approaches that have made things like flying incredibly safe that have been brought into the operating room within hospitals to reduce infection rates, to reduce errors in surgeries. And it's, it is this very, very boring process of getting down into the details, understanding why things uh, go wrong, understanding how to implement a broad concept down into the day-to-day -day operations. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It also, I think, provides more dividends than almost anything you can do in the cybersecurity field. There is no tool out there that is more valuable to cybersecurity than properly configuring systems and following processes and procedures that routinely drive down the numbers uh, of incidents that are able to bring uh, events to closure quickly. You mentioned a word there, which was effective. So what do you, what do you really define as effective? Well, I mean, an effective cybersecurity organization needs to be able uh, to understand the assets they're trying to protect, not just in terms of the computing systems, the number of hosts, the numbers of servers, the numbers of mobile phones, uh, but in terms of the information they hold, and I think more importantly in the era we're in now, the operations that they make possible. So I think that's, that's the first piece. It's really coming back to some things that have been very foundational uh, in cybersecurity, right? The idea that you need to know your assets, that you need to protect. 
building out from there, I think effective cybersecurity, uh, depending on where you are, and, and maybe I'll double back on this, uh, you need to understand what your risks are and what kind of threats you're going to face and what kind of consequences those threats can impose on your business. And so to think about that in slightly more concrete terms, as an organization, you need to understand what level of threat you're facing. Are you going to have adversaries come after you that will stop at nothing and therefore you will need to stop at nothing uh, to stop them? Uh, or are you in an organization where the A-team may come after you, but if the A-team knocks on your door and can't get in, uh, they will move along to the next one because there are other organizations out there that are less well defended that uh, can get them the information or get them the outcome that they want. And then moving further down the stack, there are many organizations where it is relatively simple to get to a point at which the run-of-the-mill cyber threats uh, are not issues that they're going to have a uh, problem handling, and also nobody will see it worth it to escalate against them. They're too hard a target. There's so many other soft targets out there. So I think understanding the risks that you face as an organization is the second most important piece uh, of effective cybersecurity. And then really on top of that is what we spend so much time talking about. Once you understand those things, once you understand your assets, once you understand the risks, then constructing a cybersecurity program and building a technological base that can provide an adequate level of security, that's actually not the hard part any longer. So where does a cybersecurity policy fit into this? The, the hard part for many companies, many boards, many CEOs to understand uh, is that there, there is no point in cyberspace when a threat to their network becomes someone else's problem. There is this assumption that at a certain point, if it's the Russians, if it's the Chinese, if it's the Iranians, if it's the nation state attacker that is coming after a company, that at a certain point it becomes the US government's problem or the UK government's problem, right? That this is what companies pay taxes for and a cyber threat should be treated the same as a missile threat. And, and the problem with that assumption is cyber threats are not like missile threats. And cyberspace is a fundamentally different domain than the air, sea, or the land. And so from that perspective, cyber policy comes in in the first place to help companies understand what governments can do, what governments will do, and what governments won't do to help companies protect themselves. And at least in a US context, and at least for the first year of the Trump administration, this has helped. The US government is going to continue, I think, even with the change in leadership uh, within the White House, to emphasize law enforcement and network security. And what does that mean? It means that the first line of defense is going to be you protecting your company uh, 
being responsible for your own security. The government's main response is going to be able to investigate those threats as crimes, to take a law enforcement approach, to work with our allies around the globe to try and capture criminals. Then there are a series of other things that the government will do and can do. The government can share information collected from intelligence, something that private companies can't legally do. Uh, the government can use its diplomatic power. It can use its economic power to influence cyber criminals through things like economic sanctions. Uh, and on a very, very bad day, the government can use military means to go after adversaries. And that can be in cyberspace or outside cyberspace. But the fundamental message that I try and give to most companies is you really actually don't want a world in which cyber command is waging war day in and day out on the network that you rely on to operate your business, to connect with your customers, to connect with your partners. And so from that perspective, it really doubles back on the idea that government's going to be in a supporting role uh, for you in the private sector. Government is going to be there to help you secure yourself, to provide you support, but isn't going to be able to do it for you. Before we move on to before we move on to more of that in terms of national security and how that affects organizations, a bit on culture shift. Do you find when a company is attacked at whatever level, uh, do you think that's the best way for companies to learn? Do you think that's the best way to get an impact in terms of culture? If it is, it's a really painful and, and slow process. And it doesn't usually, I think, uh, have much of a contagion effect. One company in an industry doesn't usually serve as a wake-up call to the rest of industry. I also think we're at a point now where it may end up being too late. Uh, the next few cyber attacks could end up being so devastating to companies uh, that they may, they may end up going out of business. They may end up ceasing to operate. So while, while it may be a, a good teacher, I think it, it's, it is not, uh, not the way that we want to proceed. We've got to find a better way to get companies incentivized to invest in their own cybersecurity than waiting for them to get breached. Moreover, I think it's waiting for them to get breached and having that breach go public. Uh, I, I've been very frustrated when I was in a policy role uh, with the number of breaches that I was aware of that the public was not, their shareholders were not. And so I think the, the best answer here is one, we probably need to strengthen the breach disclosure laws, uh, at least in the U.S., to move beyond just personally identifiable information uh, so that disclosures of things like intellectual property, which arguably will have a much bigger impact on a company's bottom line, uh, must be disclosed and disclosed routinely and disclosed by third parties if necessary. But I think we need other kinds of incentives uh, in order uh, to improve cybersecurity more broadly. I've been fairly encouraged by what I've seen, which is that the, the top of the financial industry has really invested and invested in an intelligent way in cybersecurity and are now very focused on pushing 
better cybersecurity practices out to the vendors that they rely on. And so we've almost seen uh, the big banks acting as a uh, regulatory body for their vendors. And I think that's actually a very good thing. I think right now uh, the, the actual financial industry regulators are almost playing catch up uh, with the top of the financial community. So moving back to national security, you spent uh, many years, shall we say, within within the government and the National Security Council, for example. What were your objectives when you're working for and, you know, you're trying to work in that national security, you know, bodies, really? So for the time that, that I was at the, um, at the White House, that was 2011 to 2015, I, and we really divided the world uh, into international and, and domestic. And I think internationally, our main focus in that time was addressing Chinese intellectual property theft. And in that, in that window, I think it really went, uh, some of this work was done before I was there, some of this work was done after I was there, and most of this work was done by others. I had a, a small role in it, but what we were able to do was move it from not being on the bilateral agenda to China with China to being the top issue on the bilateral agenda with China, and then to use every tool that we had in that time to combat it. And so that involved everything from domestic information sharing on Chinese actors to the indictment of the five people of Liberation Army uh, cyber actors that were responsible uh, for a, a wide range of intellectual property theft. Uh, to maintaining a continual dialogue uh, with the Chinese government and a, a continual name and shame effect on them. So I, I think that was, that was number one. And then the second piece of it were really efforts to try and induce private companies to do more to protect themselves outside of a regulatory approach. And so there, there was an attempt uh, when I was uh, at the Department of Homeland Security, but before I got to the uh, to the White House, to uh, broaden regulatory powers for for the Department of Homeland Security over critical infrastructure, that that was pretty resoundingly defeated uh, by the Chamber of Commerce, uh, who really just made an argument at the time that the economy was. Uh, struggling, that uh, information technology was one of the few bright spots in it, uh, and that the last thing the economy needed uh, was a, a new broad regulatory authority. And so we, we lost that, that push uh, and ended up having to pivot towards a, a, a voluntary approach that the NIST cybersecurity framework and multiple uh, information sharing initiatives that, that I worked on were part of that. Uh, and I think, you know, broadly speaking, I think the, those initiatives were in many ways more successful uh, than than, uh, than many people in, uh, thought that they would be. Uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework really almost has a life of its own uh, beyond government pushing it at this point. It's really being uh, adopted as a standard of care within within many industries, 
and I think is given a kind of broad national and in some cases international baseline for companies to build cybersecurity programs off of. Two words in there, which was successful and, and wins. For someone that's in a decision-making role, but maybe needs to report to a C-suite or a board, what would you suggest in terms of trying to communicate this with, with them types of people? The Obama administration had a, I don't know if it, we call it a slogan, but uh, it was pretty useful. It, it was a, no ego, no drama, it's not about you. And so that, that, would, that would be the first lesson that I took away from from those years is uh, being very focused on the mission, very focused on uh, the stakeholders involved, uh, in, in this case, the American public. And then the second part of it uh, was to recognize that unlike what many people think about U.S. government, that, that it's a... Uh, that it's a, either a democracy that looks a lot like uh, the election system or that it operates inside government uh, like an authoritarian regime with the, uh, with the president at the top, uh, that, that neither is really true. Uh, and that government policymaking mostly works through a, a consensus process. It, it mostly requires bringing along uh, all the stake stakeholders involved. And, and that can mean uh, both individual agencies that have a seat at the table in the policymaking process, as well as the stakeholder communities that they, that they represent who uh, can have a very loud voice. And so uh, a lot of the things I worked on uh, took far longer than many people think they should have, uh, but it, it could sometimes take a year or two years uh, to reach the necessary level of consensus to convince everybody that may have been resistant to a new direction uh, that they wanted, uh, that they actually did want to go in that direction. And so I think patience and and listening and then really spending a lot of time understanding the problems you're trying to solve, articulating that clearly, and then being open to many different solutions was, was the key to getting some of these things done. You said the word patience there. You, you put in a lot of processes and policies required, not just, not just at the White House, but you know, a variety of your other roles, I'm sure. In terms of cyber incident response and vulnerability management, how long would you say this would take for someone that was implementing this for the first time? So I think one of the, one of the hard things about cybersecurity uh, is that building uh, a cybersecurity program takes far longer than people think mm. it will or that should. One of the things that when we, when we were uh, promoting uh, expanding regulation that we would hear uh, was that uh, cyberspace technology moves too fast for regulation to keep up with it. And, and it sounds very clever and you think it's true and gosh, technology does move so fast and bureaucracies move so slow. But, but the reality I think in cybersecurity is, is far different. Uh, it takes an awful long time uh, to move 
from an insecure platform to a secure one. It takes an awful long time to do a technology refresh uh, that may be that may be necessary uh, in order to be more secure or to be securable. Uh, I've talked to a lot of uh, large financial institutions that um, are moving as rapidly as they can to next generation technology that they believe will uh, will give them a more secure platform and their projections for doing that are, are in the five to 10 year range, uh, doing it in a way, obviously that's not going to impact the business negatively, uh, and doing it securely. And so I think you need to think in those, those time horizons, part of the challenge that I see in the space is that, the accepted number out there is that a chief information security officer is typically around for 18 months. So that means half don't even last that long. And yet, if what you need is somebody to oversee a, a five-year technology refresh from a security standpoint, uh, it's going to be awfully problematic if you're going to have three to four different people in that, in that role in that time frame with them challenges and the speed of innovation and transformation, how often should people audit or review these programs and how would they go about doing that? I think the real answer here is that they need to do it continually and in an automated fashion. And if you can build the systems to produce the data so that you know how you're doing in real time or near, near real time, then that next level of auditor assessment is much, much easier, right? If you're able to look at the data and say, okay, we know uh, how many servers we've got, how many hosts we've got, how many phones we've got, we know the number of each that are in compliance with their security protocols, or not in compliance with our security protocols. We know that that number is improving over time. We can tell you the number of servers that have insecure builds on them at this day and time. We can show you that it's going down over time. Then that next level of assessment is so much easier to do. And then it can be done effectively and quickly and cheaply. Uh, what, what I've seen is that using the sort of the clipboard and note taking and document review and interview process, a lot of the time, by the time that first process is complete, the interval between the next uh, process is not even long enough that substantial pro progress has been made. And so I, I really think this is a space that that is really ripe for a for a lot of innovation, uh, where we've got to get to a point where uh, a security assessment is is being done on a dashboard uh, and not not on a clipboard. You mentioned the word previously called cyber war. Cyber war, cyber conflict. Where, where do you see them sitting now in terms of national security priorities? Yeah, in my view. I think right now, looking at uh, both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the only thing that 
I think rightly is trumping concerns over cyber warfare, concerns over malicious activity in cyberspace that, that might fall outside the spectrum of warfare uh, is nuclear proliferation. I think we saw rightly in the Obama administration uh, concerns with uh, nuclear proliferation in Iran, trumping concerns with Iran cyber activity. I think that was the right decision. I think it was the right call. And I think we see the same thing happening right now uh, with the Trump administration and North Korea. The, the goal is to uh, quell the level of uh, rhetoric uh, with North Korea. The goal is a uh, nuclear-free Korean peninsula. And so you're not hearing, uh, at least I'm not hearing that much out of the Trump administration about North Korea's bad acts in cyberspace, even their continued cyber criminal activities to fund the regime. I think that's, I think that's the right decision. I, I think cybersecurity is important, but it's also important not to get too myopic on it. So would you say that it's more, it's probably more of a priority than a, than a physical terrorist attack? Would you say it's more dangerous than a physical terrorist attack? I, I will be the first person to say that I, I think the comparison to terrorism is a little bit of a dangerous one. Um, I think terrorists really have not yet uh, found what could be achieved uh, in terms of destruction through a cyber attack to, to be in their interest. Uh, and I, I think that's because uh, in terms of inflicting harm, they're interested in body counts and they're also interested in visuals and they're also interested in being able to take credit uh, for harm. And so from that perspective, uh, I think we're gonna see terrorists uh, continue to use the internet uh, the same way that a Fortune 500 company will, right? It, it is about training, it's about recruiting, it's about brand recognition, uh, it's about communication, but, but it's not about uh, carrying out cyber attacks uh, for the purpose of directly achieving their ends of harming the United States. Now, in terms of carrying, uh, of comparing a terrorist risk to cyber risk, no, I still think, and I, I came out of the Homeland Security community uh, looking at physical threats. I mean, I, I still think that the potential harm for from a catastrophic terrorist attack uh, is probably greater uh, than the potential harm from a cyber attack. Uh, not only because of the potential uh, to have catastrophic levels of casualties, but because of the impact psychologically that attacks like that have uh, and the, the reactions that they, uh, that they require. And so from that perspective, I, I think it, it's hard to say which is, a, which is a greater threat. I think right now terrorism is, it feels to me like a more contained threat it's a threat that we may understand better, that we have approaches to handling and that we've been effectively managing, um, not with a perfect record, but with a good record uh, for about 15 years. 
uh, cyber is, I think, an area where we still don't necessarily have uh, a clear plan, a clear vision, a clear strategy, uh, and we have a lot more unknowns in that space. How could cyber war or cyber conflict actually affect a organization? So the, the you know the the thing that I think many of us who were in the Obama administration uh, are beating ourselves up about it at every level uh, is that we missed what Russia was doing or did not pay enough attention to what Russia was doing uh, in their near abroad. Um, we thought of Russia in many ways as being almost a an honorable actor in cyberspace, which I know sounds terribly naive with hindsight, but the Russians to, to I think many uh, in the intelligence community and in the policy community, they looked like they understood what the rules of the game were. And so they'd come after diplomatic targets, military targets, they do it for intelligence collection. They do it in a very targeted way. Uh, they knew what they were going after. They would be very stealthy in going about it. It'd be very hard to catch them. They, they were sort of perceived as a, um, a uh, honorable competitor in cyberspace. And, and so when they would do things like uh, get into the email of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or get in the White House or State Department networks, there was really this sense that it wasn't shame on them. They were doing what they were supposed to do. It was shame on us for not being able to beat them. Well, it turned out that you know, while they were uh, carrying out these deliberate intelligence collection campaigns uh, against the U.S. government, while the Chinese were rampaging through the corporate sector, and we were focused on that, the Russians were honing their capabilities uh, to manipulate elections and to interfere with democratic processes uh, in their near abroad. And we weren't paying enough attention to that. Well, why, do I, why do I raise that now? Well, the fear that I have, and I, I think is now shared by many, Knowing what Russia has done, I think now twice to take down portions of Ukraine's power grid uh, suggests that when the geopolitical moment is right, we should expect that they will try to do the same thing in the United States. And whether or not, and there are very mixed views on this, uh, the U.S. power sector is prepared to handle that, to stop that and respond to that, um, I think remains to be seen. And so that kind of incident could have a drastic impact on the corporate sector. If we're talking about something like that, which is a infrastructure, and that's going to affect you know, possibly millions of people, how aware should the public be with what's going on? within cyber war and cyber conflicts? Aware enough to have 72 hours of food and water and medication uh, at their disposal. I, I think that from, from the average public 
perspective, um, there's not much that an individual can do um, to combat threats on that scale. Uh, And so my, you know, my message on that front is is usually pretty simple, right? A a cyber attack that takes down the power grid uh, is going to look a lot like a hurricane that takes down the power grid, at least uh, at least from the impact uh, on individuals. And so from that perspective, it's the same kind of all hazard planning that you need to do. What would you suggest in terms of the best for organizations, the best way to prepare for this, you know, especially in the infrastructure market right now, um, there's, as you said, it's, uh, it's one of the main talking points but I'm still not convinced that companies actually know the best way of trying to deal with this. What what would you recommend? Exercises. I mean, I think that the the most important thing um, is to not believe that you can be uh, impenetrable or that you are working towards that goal uh, and that even if you could be, you would have so many dependencies for your business um, that that it wouldn't do you do you much good. There's a there's a graphic that I show. I, I think a lot of um, Goldman Sachs as a corporation. I think a lot of their cybersecurity and their preparedness programs. But there's a there's a great graphic uh, that I've I've used in presentations, which is a, an image of Goldman Sachs headquarters. Uh, during uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, and it's the only building in uh, Lower Manhattan uh, that has any electricity. All the lights are on, and you can see the uh, the berm of uh, sandbags that Goldman put up around it. And while that's a great thing to do, um, and probably save them a lot of money in water damage. Uh, None of their employees obviously could get to work because the rest of the city was halted. So that that's not a knock on Goldman Sachs, but it is to say that the dependencies that you have as an organization uh, are are rather extreme. And so I think exercising and exercising with your partners and knowing how you'd respond and planning those responses is the most important thing. And an offshoot of that is you may come to understand, you may receive some wisdom in that process about what you need to do as a community uh, to ensure your survivability and improve uh, your efficiency at responding to these kinds of incidents uh, as a community. Why would a government assist another country with cybersecurity resources? A big, a big push that I think is really necessary is actually more of that. We need uh, the U.S. and other developing uh, countries or developed countries to help the developing world as the last three billion citizens, uh, global citizens, are are brought online. And the reason we need to do that is um, cybersecurity. Uh, is an issue that that knows or does not respect borders. Um, from a legal perspective, 
countries uh, have authority over what happens in systems in in cyberspace, but from a barriers perspective, uh, borders borders are not barriers, and so if systems are uh, infected with botnets in the developing world, uh, those botnets are likely to be turned into a denial of service attack against targets uh, in the developed world. Uh, they're likely to to appear as as cross border harms that are going to be best controlled by uh, cooperative efforts uh, to uh, limit pirated software, to uh, develop national certs, uh, to lead cyber hygiene campaigns uh, in countries, to ensure that devices getting made in those countries are uh, produced securely at the start. And so it's those reasons that it makes a lot of sense to invest and we should be investing more uh, in, in helping other countries uh, with their cybersecurity. If we have no borders in cybersecurity, how do we expect to govern this? Again, I, I wouldn't say we, we don't have borders, but we don't have boundaries, right? Um, we need to think of borders in cyberspace as, as delimiting the law and delimiting responsibility, but not uh, being a limiting factor for malicious traffic moving from one country to another. Right? The idea that the, the Great Firewall of China uh, is a tool for cybersecurity, the Great Firewall is really a misnomer. The Great Firewall is a, is a tool for censorship. It, it's not an effective tool uh, for stopping uh, malicious actors or foreign governments or intelligence agencies from getting into uh, and out of China. Um, the technology just does not work that way. Uh, the place that cybersecurity happens is, is not on the network. Uh, it's uh, to some extent on the corporate network, at the endpoint, the cloud provider, uh, but it's not on the national network. And so the, the governance problem is really about uh, governing the actions of, of the owners and operators of those systems, not trying to control the network and look at and block every bad packet that, that crosses it. How do you see cyber warfare and national security evolving in the next five years? I, I would make the prediction that in the next five years, we are likely to see a real world war begin in cyberspace, likely with a miscalculation, likely with one country not recognizing uh, or not even understanding uh, the harm that an action in cyberspace was going to cause and underestimating the reaction of the public and leadership in the country attacked and not recognizing that it was likely going, going to lead uh, to a kinetic response. 
So I mean, the short answer is to say, I think in the next five years, the evolution we're going to see is that uh, a cyber attack is going to be answered with a cruise missile. And that will be a very surprising moment for many people in the national security field. Brilliant. Okay, Rob. Now, every podcast, I didn't actually tell you this, like I don't tell anyone else. We finish with 10 quick fire questions to finish off. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> what would you say turned you on professionally? New problem. What turned you off professionally? Too much bureaucracy. How do you unwind? Sailing. What profession other than your own would you like to try? I'd like to be a chef. What activity gives you the most energy? Skiing. Who is your biggest inspiration? My wife. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Resilience. You're at your best when you are doing what? Thinking. Now it gets a bit more difficult. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Take calculus. And the last one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Executive Order 13636. So tell me, you, I've actually never had that answer before in terms of who is your biggest inspiration. You said your wife, which is a sensible answer for sure. But what has she, what has she taught you that gives you or what has she given you that gives you so much inspiration? My, my wife is a psychologist and has a, a deep faith in humans as individuals. And so that's, that's helped me as I uh, navigated the sometimes ugly world of uh, politics and Washington and national security. I can imagine. So Rob, how, how can people reach you, see some of your work? You know, how, how can people find you? I'm uh, at Rob Kanaki, R-O-B-K-N-A-K-E on Twitter. Uh, and if you uh, want to see my uh, writings, uh, you can go uh, to CFR.org. That's the Council on Foreign Relations website. And look me up as, a, as an expert listed there. And that's got uh, everything I've written and uh, most of my television and other media appearances. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.